Well, tonight we're, uh, we're going to come to our next to last installment of our cross-culture series. And uh, as you know, we're thinking through different issues that we all struggle with and how to think about those things through the lens of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. It's an especially fitting day to do that, uh, not because it's Halloween, but because it is also, what, Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Um, all of you know what Reformation Day is? No. For those of you who don't know, uh, I'm happy to tell you about it. Um, so it was on this day, October 31st, in the year 1517, in Wittenberg, Germany, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church house door at... Uh, the church house door in, in Wittenberg. German, uh, Martin Luther was a German Catholic monk who had never, um, never really read the, the Bible much and uh, was assigned, of all things, to teach Bible, the Bible in a seminary, a Catholic seminary. And he's like, I've never really read the Bible but I'm supposed to teach it. So he was supposed to teach class on the book of Romans, and so I thought I've never read Romans. So he read Romans, and he got his wheels turned, and he thought, wait a minute. If this is what Scripture says the gospel is, it seems to be completely at odds with what I've believed all my life. And he actually found 95 of those disagreements that he put up for debate. Uh, that's when he nailed those 95 theses to the church house door. He was basically addressing the, the other faculty members saying, let's have a debate on these things. Um, but that, that event, that was October 31st, 1517, 501 years ago today. And um, that event, it is hard to overstate, is probably the most significant and symbolic um, event kicking off the Protestant Reformation and the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that salvation, according to Scripture alone, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And it literally changed the world. I get literally changed the world. Um, in so, so many ways, your life, whether you've heard of Martin Luther or not, you know, your, your life has been impacted by the fact that on this day, 501 years ago, a German monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a door. And, um, and uh, in so many ways, it was, oh gosh, I just think about, I just think about, I, I'm sorry, it's not what we're talking about tonight in cross-culture. I'm just, I think about that. Just, I, can't, I, w I just can't imagine what it must have been like in that, in that day. You know, so many of the people were illiterate, couldn't read, and they certainly couldn't read Latin. And that's the only language in which the Bible existed at that time, was in Latin. And they were Catholic, and when they went to Mass, what language did the priest speak? He spoke Latin. They didn't understand Latin. Imagine going to church, and you don't know anything that's being said. You have no idea. The priest tells you to do this and do that and do this and do that. And you do it because you don't know any different. You've never read the Bible. And you don't understand anything that's going on in church. And you could be believing all sorts of error, and they were. But they didn't know any better. All of a sudden, Martin Luther comes along and some other reformers and said, why don't we just translate the Bible into the language that people can read? And farther, furthermore, nobody had a Bible in that day. The only Bible, there was usually only one Bible in town, and it was chained to the pulpit in the Catholic Church. Why was it chained there? Because they were usually made like all gilded and gold, and they were very expensive, and people were hungry and starving. They would steal it and buy food with it. Um, but what, it, what a time it must have been when all of a sudden the Bible is in your own language and the pastors are preaching in your own language, and you hear the gospel for the first time. It was amazing. It was amazing. Uh, swept all the way through Europe, swept into England, swept into our country because of that. It totally changed the way churches were designed. You've been into a Catholic church. Catholic church is usually front and center is the is the the altar or the Lord's Supper table. <laughs> it's the it's the it's the place where 
the Eucharist or communion takes place, the altar, because they that's the that's the center point of a Catholic service, and the pulpit where the word is preached is usually off to the side. Um, but when the Protestant Reformation happened, um, it totally rearranged everything, and the the pulpit became front and center of the room because the most important thing that happened in a church service from that point on is breaking open this book that we now understand and hearing from God. That's, that's awesome. So anyway, uh, in light of that, it was that th- this is the day where 501 years ago, symbolically, I mean, there were some reformers before that, in the 1300s, 1400s, like uh, Wycliffe, if you've heard of Wycliffe and people like that. But the gospel was, was, was rediscovered, and, and, uh, and as it's come down to us, we understand through reading the Bible that the, that the gospel isn't just, a, like I said last week, just a set of propositions or a set of statements that we say, okay, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that. But they are, it's come to us in Scripture as, hey, these are historical realities that really happened. Jesus really lived, he really died, he really rose again, and it's, and the Holy Spirit has really come. And so the gospel is a reality that we enter into, not just a set of ideas that we believe. And that, that reality that we enter into in Jesus Christ, not only are we, are we forgiven of our sins, but we are, Scripture says, new creatures in Christ. And we are in Christ and new creatures in Him. And it redefines everything about who we are. And you put a bunch of us together and we become a whole unique culture of people centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we've already thought about how the gospel, that gospel that we believed, impacts fear, anxiety, and worry in us, and then, and then uh, gossip and slander and distraction and bitterness and hurt and anger. Chandler Donegan talked to us about jealousy and self-image. Um, and I'm glad he did that because some of what he talked about would relate to what we're going to talk about tonight, but there's no way I could get to that tonight, so I'm glad he did it then. Then last week, we talked about pride and prejudice, and tonight we're going to think about an issue that is so um, pervasive in our hearts and in our culture, one that is as, as, as destructive as any we face, and that is sexual temptation um sexuality and sexual temptation is worth thinking carefully through because at least in today's culture it has the tendency in our minds to be a complete identity marker for us so many people if you if you noticed like i and maybe you have it. Maybe maybe you're just young enough that it's just kind of always been the, this way your whole life. But I'm I'm really not that old. But I'm old enough to know. I can see how it, even in my lifetime it has become more this way. That so many people define themselves in terms of their sexuality. Like this is who I am. And and the and the the I and that this is who I am has to, it revolves around their sexuality uh, or their sexual tendencies or their sexual experiences. Like it's, it's weird. Out of all the other things that are true about you, that's the one thing that gets elevated to the defining mark about you. We should quit mopping. Um, but uh, so it's an important thing to think about. Um, and, 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 and we've said every week week after week after week on purpose what makes what like i said what makes the christian faith a unique culture is that scripture teaches that we we're sinners before god and we can't save ourselves but jesus christ has saved us died in our place rose in our place we're in christ we're as fully and in him we're as fully loved and accepted before god as jesus himself is loved and accepted before the father and so we keep reminding ourselves of this gospel every week the question is how are you right with god from the Heidelberg Catechism, another document that came out of this Protestant Reformation. The Heidelberg Catechism says, how are you right with God? And here's the answer that we say together. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments 
and of never having kept any of them. And even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept the gift of God with a believing heart. That is beautiful. And uh, for that reason, because we believe those things, Christians ought to be not only humble about themselves, but honest about ourselves. Because we know, and I say it every week, the more we are honest about ourselves and our struggles, the less power those struggles have over our, our, our lives. Not to say we will... Um, immediately have total victory over that struggle but it would begin to weaken because we've it's, it's out in the light now walk in the light as he is in the light and uh and it's and the more honest we are about ourselves the the the, the greater jesus shines in our lives and the the more magnified is his grace over us but like i said our um our topic tonight is sexual temptation and I hope that we can talk as plainly and as helpfully as we can uh, and maybe consider this struggle in ways that we haven't previously or maybe we have but need to be confronted with again. Um, and then certainly see what the gospel of Jesus Christ has to say about it and to it. And so I suppose we need to start somewhere in Scripture. And so as a starting point, um, go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis 2. And it just dawned on me that this will be the second week in a row that we've started out in these early chapters of Genesis. Um, we did it last week in Pride and Prejudice. But we'll start tonight in Genesis 2. And we'll begin in verse 18. It's not going to be on the screen, so if you have your Bible, it would be good if you turn there. We'll begin reading in verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. That is for dang sure. Um, I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I like the Hebrew words there. Man is ish and woman is isha. She shall be called isha because she was taken out of ish. <laughs> Therefore, I don't know why I like that, but I do. You'll laugh at me all you want. I like it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Turn over to one page or so to chapter 4. Just read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his, he knew Eve, his wife. What kind of knowing is this? Well, not just an intellectual kind because she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. All right, let's pray. God, help us to think about these things with sober minds and sober hearts. And, uh, Father, I know that, in the, that I have much to say, but I know that there are gaps, there are things that will be left unsaid, things that for time constraints cannot be said. I pray that what you have led me to say is what you want me to say. 
And I pray that what it is that you have for me to say, uh, you will help us all to hear. And hear it not based on my authority, but on the authority of your word. Because your word is authoritative. It's living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. And it is, it is inspired of your Holy Spirit. It is inerrant as a result. And it's sufficient for all that we need to know for life and salvation and godliness. It is, it's clear for us to understand. It's necessary because we are hopeless without your word. And um, give us minds to understand it. Give us eyes to see both the truth in this text and, and clear eyes to see our own hearts and our sins clearly. Give us minds uh, and the ability to understand the truth that we see and hearts to embrace it, wills to carry it out and live it out and obey. Father, um, please do the work in this room, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so these, uh, these early chapters of Genesis are utterly fascinating to me. Um, I feel like the older I get, the more and more I've read them, I've never reached the bottom of the wisdom in these pages. Like, you'll just find it. The more you keep coming back to these early chapters of Genesis, even after chapter 3 and sin enters into the world, um, it's like I notice something every time I sit down and, and read the story. There's just so much here. And here's what Genesis feels like to me. It feels like these first couple of chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, I feel like it feels like they're just sitting here quietly saying, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to be. And, and then life is just so busy, and we're going here, and we're going there, and we're doing this, and we're doing that all the time, and we're never still enough to listen. But if we ever do sit down for a minute, we ever do put down our phone for just a minute, and we open up, it's still just this quiet place. Genesis 1 and 2 is still just this quiet place that's still, just like it was the last time we were here, just quietly saying, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to be. And what we find here is not just the creation of man and woman in the creation of Adam and Eve, but the creation of sexuality as a God-given good aspect of human life. Um, God finally created the woman, Isha, and brought her to Adam. And did you notice what he said in verse 23? This at last is bone of my bones. I mean, he delighted in her alone. Someone perfectly suited for him. Because it said in verse 18, I will make a helper fit, suitable, perfectly suitable for him. Perfectly suited. He delighted in her this at last. And, and in that covenant relationship between them, it says in verse 25, they were naked and were not ashamed. And we're not ashamed. That's an important point that we're going to come back to a little bit later on. We're just going to file that away. They were naked and they were not ashamed. And the reason we turned over to chapter 4 um, and read those first couple of verses was to show further that, yes, sex was for the, the pleasure of the husband and wife in marriage, but also for the having of children. Like its, its purpose is to have children. And to have children is not um, just an antiquated idea. We talked about in the relationship talk. Somebody asked, um, should we have children? I'm like, yeah, because it's connected to uh, fill the earth with God's glory. Because having children is a discipleship issue. You have children and you bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord and they grow up to be mighty oaks of God and then after you're gone, they're still in the world spreading his glory. That's, that's the point. But, but how is that? how does even that having of children related to the sexual intimacy of the husband and wife? Um, well, the having, the, the, the having of children through sexual intimacy you got a child now, it comes with great responsibility. It brings about great life-giving responsibility. Not just the new life that is now coming to the world that wasn't here before, because the two of you got together, 
But because now that that child is here, now husband and wife are now dying to themselves. Husband and wife are now dying to themselves to give their lives for the raising of this child that's now in the world because of our sexual union. And that's connected because once, once you are husband and wife are now dying to themselves in selflessness to, to raise this child that is now the product of their sexual union, that, that growth between husband and wife in selflessness now makes their sexual relationship between themselves even the more joyful and the more um, and the better. Because they're now uh, you just you're no longer two selfish people coming together in sexual union, but two selfless people coming together in sexual union. It's a beautiful thing. And it really is beautiful the way God has designed it in all its aspects. And it's deeply fulfilling and deeply satisfying. And you have to start here. If we're going to talk about sexual temptation or sexual issues or sexuality, we have to start here. Because, because you have to start with this picture and this reality in Genesis 2 and, and then children coming that's presented so beautifully because if, if you've got to start here if you're, if you're ever going to begin to see how sin has destroyed and distorted sexuality and corrupted sexual desires into something gross and wicked and sad um, our culture likes to even the way we talk about it is corrupted we don't talk about it in the way the bible teaches us to talk about it because if you ever hear the culture talking about it 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 likes to demonize certain kinds of sexual uh, aberration like um you know like oh, they they highlight certain kinds or per, certain kinds of sexual desires or particular kinds of sexual um attractions those are the ones that are evil those are the ones that are weird those are the ones that are not normal but in reality all of them are to the extent that they they veer away from God's design uh, we don't have a, there's not a sins problem, this sin and that sin. We, there's a sin problem. And every sexual expression outside of what we just saw in Genesis 2, outside of that design, dishonors God and is a danger to us. Um, so Satan, by the way, has two main weapons that he uses against us over and over again and will throughout your life. One is pain. I think Job. What was Job tempted to do through his pain? His wife kept saying, curse God and die. So pain, Satan likes to use pain in our lives in, a, in an attempt to make us uh, become angry at God and walk away from him out of our anger at him. Why did this happen to me? But the other weapon that Satan has is pleasure. Um, pleasure that's outside of God's design. Why? So that we forget about God altogether. And we have no desire to leave the pleasure we've found. And the pleasure weapon is particularly dangerous because the pleasure weapon always, in the end, turns into pain. It's a particularly wicked thing. So here's one I want us to think about for a minute tonight before we break up and pray together. First, I want us to see, uh, I want us to see the temptation rightly. See sexual temptation for what it is so that we can accurately see what we are fighting in our own hearts. And again, as I wrote down what I wanted to say, there was so much that I just didn't write down. I, I don't have time to write it down, but we'll try to take a stab at seeing this temptation rightly. And then secondly, uh, see how to fight it. What practically, practically can we do and how does the gospel help us here? And then we'll pray for each other at the end. So let's think first about seeing the temptation rightly. And we'll look at some different places in the scripture to think about this. But we'll start really kind of where we are from what we've already said in Genesis 2. And the first point about sexual temptation from what we see in Genesis 2, one thing based on if, you, if, the, if all you had was this, if all you had in the scriptures was this, and then what you see today, right? If all you had was these words right here, and then it's how beautiful this is, and you looked around at what it is today, no, I think one of the first things you could describe of what we see today is 
in, in terms of sexual temptation is it's a misdirected good. Sexual temptation is a misdirected good. It's a, uh, we already kind of just alluded to that truth, but I want to make it explicit here. It's a, it's a misdirected good. Now, you can slice that in a lot of different ways because it depends on how divergent the temptation is from what God has said in his word, but at a fundamental level, the mere presence of sexual desire is a good thing. You didn't create yourself. God created you. And he created you in such a way that you have sexual desire within you. The mere presence of that is a good thing because God created you and said you're very good when he created you. But when sin came into the world in Genesis 3 and it took that good desire and it turned it, turned it away from God's good design, it turned it in all kind of different directions. And... The, and, 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 and Piggy, piggybacking on, on um, what I said just a minute ago. Our culture, if you listen to our culture, we want to talk about these things as Scripture talks about it. Because if you just listen to the culture, listen to the people around you, a lot of times when, in the, in the culture, when, when you talk about sin, and at least within the church, let me just talk with a church crowd. When we talk, sin has corrupted sexual desires into something it was never meant to be a lot of times the first thing that comes to people's minds is homosexual desires let's just i'm just to say it that's in the church that's just a reality um or something like that but the truth is there are a billion heterosexual desires that are as far away from god and his design as anything could be and if you don't realize that you got a long road to hoe in this fight there are a billion yeah homosexual uh attraction and and expression uh is is not according to god's design but there are a billion heterosexual variations that are also not either way far away and so this is not a struggle just for the few this is or just one particular kind of sexual temptation but all of every kind that falls outside of what we just read in Genesis 2, of sexual expression within the covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. And that is a radical, it's not a radical thing to say at Lakeview Baptist Church, but Lakeview Baptist Church is a tiny island in a big cultural ocean, and that's a radical thing to say in our culture today. Um, because so much of our sexual desire, the reason that's a radical thing to say that, that anything outside, any sexual expression outside of the, the covenant bond of marriage between one man and one woman. The reason that's a radical thing to say in today's climate is because so much of our sexual desire doesn't feel chosen by us. It doesn't feel chosen, and, and it seems to be what is natural for us and has been for as long as I can remember. Uh, so someone doesn't ever remember choosing to be gay or choosing to have same-sex attraction. or uh, that, that's, that's usually the context in which that kind of argument comes. I didn't choose to be gay. I didn't choose to ha have same-sex attractions. Um, so it must be right or I must have a way of expressing that um, so we redefine marriage to accommodate that so that they have an avenue to express that. That's who they are. And I won't dispute that, that, that the, the misdirected homosexual desire isn't always a conscious choosing. I, I have no reason to argue with that person that they consciously chose it. Um, and it, that it feels like it's always been the most natural di direction of your sexual desire. Um, but the truth is, that is the truth for every misdirected sexual desire. Not just yours. The heterosexual guy who wants to sleep with as many girls as he can is just living out a desire that always seems to have been there. And he can't recall a time when he tried to make a calm and rational choice. I could either be faithful to one or weigh the pros and cons of sleeping with as many girls. I don't think he did that. He just lived life and... And uh, 
And that's what happened. The fact is, we're, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And sin has messed us up at the root of who we are. All of us. And sexual desires are a good example of that. And as believers who struggle with these things, and you don't need me to tell you, I hope you don't need me to tell you, uh, that believers struggle with these things, both the heterosexual and the homosexual kind of attraction, the cultural tendency that we live in, the cultural tendency to find ways to excuse every variation um, of sexual expression so that we can give in to them and try to convince ourselves, give us an avenue to convince ourselves that it's okay is not the way of Christ. It's just not the way of Christ. Sam Alberry is an Anglican pastor and speaker and writer in England whom I highly recommend to you. He, he, he also says that he has openly, uh, he openly struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, I heartily recommend his writings to you. Here's what he said about uh, his personal same-sex attraction. But what he says here doesn't apply to just that. What he says here uh, applies to anybody who finds any part of their identity or is tempted to find any part of their identity in, in terms of their sexuality. He says, I am I'm same-sex attracted and have been my entire life. By that, I mean I have sexual, romantic, and deep emotional attractions to people of the same sex. I choose to describe myself this way because sexuality is not a matter of identity for me. And that has become good news. Pause right here. Notice that he's only said, I'm same-sex attracted. He did not say, I'm same-sex actively involved with a, a person of the same sex. He simply said, that's where my attractions lie, right? He said, it's not a matter of identity for me, and that has become good news. My primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled. And this is liberating. This is where it's not just for same-sex attracted people, but for any person. That he says, my primary sense of worth and fulfillment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled of any stripe. The most, here's, and here's what he says, the most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married. He, he was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. If we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our Savior subhuman. So, that's the way of Christ. The, the misdirection of our culture is it, it tries to convince everyone that their, whatever it is that they sense is their, are their sexual preferences, that's... That the culture will say, that defines who you are. And therefore, if you never fulfill those desires in whatever sex, sexual relationship you choose, then you are never really actually being fully who you are. And who you believe you're supposed to be. Sam Alberry reminds us that Jesus was the most perfect and fully human person who ever lived. And no sexual expression was intrinsic to who he is. And so our wrongly directed sexual desires, hear me on this, our, our wrongly directed sexual desires, which you have and I have, because we're sinners at root, our wrongly directed sexual desires are not a demand to find our identity in them. But an invitation to find our identity in Christ. Who stands with us. If you're in Christ. 
as you struggle with this in your own heart, Christ is standing with you and He sympathizes with your weaknesses and He makes you whole. Because if we don't, if we don't, we're trying to, still trying to see this temptation rightly. If we don't see it that way, the consequences are awful. They're awful. Uh, first of all, Scripture opens as we've been uh, as we've seen telling us that this sexual expression according to God's design is free of all shame. They, were, they became one flesh, they were naked, and there was no shame there. Not any shame whatsoever. And it's inside that good and holy covenant com- communion between man and a woman. But outside of that, there is shame in every desire and expression of sexual desire outside of that, even if it's heterosexual. Whatever the expression is, whether, like I said, whether, you're, whether you are sexually active with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you know it's wrong, or it's pornography, or it's uh, same-sex attraction, Whatever variety it is, people feel shame. It's their shame associated with it. But Scripture is clear, too, that this is the danger of unrepentant. The gospel is going to speak to that person in just a minute who feels the shame. Um, but the danger of it is for those who go unrepentant in that sin, in that sexual sin, um, that should bring them shame. The consequence of that, if it goes unrepentant of, is it, it 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 hardens our hearts to a point where we no longer feel any shame. And it says in Jeremiah chapter eight, verses ten through twelve, God says, "They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace." When there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Our, over time, sexual sin hardens our hearts so that we no longer feel the shame that we once did or should have felt. That does not mean that we will never feel shame again. Um, there's two ways that, in that point, you, you, you are fallen into sexual, you, you have experienced sexual temptation and you have fallen into sexual sin. And you feel shame over it, rightly so. You are trusting in Christ, you profess to be, trusting in Christ. And and I'm having to talk in shorthand, by the way. So when I say you fall into sexual sin, I mean a whole range of stuff. you got to know that. Whether it's you and another person, or you by yourself. You are that person. You're trusting in Christ, or you profess to be. You have felt shame over it. You're at a point where you're beginning to not feel shame over it anymore. You're sort of losing that battle and really don't care to be. That doesn't mean you'll never feel shame again. There's two ways that you could come to feel shame again. One is, it could be that if you really are a believer, the Holy Spirit of God brings that sin to light in a new way in your uh, life, perhaps in a painful way that ends up being for your good. Um, so that you, whatever painful situation happens, maybe to expose the sin that you're involved in, it's, it's painful when it happens, but it brings a new level of shame right to the surface, and it's a good thing, because it drives you to Christ where you needed to be all along, and it helps you to forsake that sin. That's one way that you can feel shame again. The Holy Spirit 
may have to may have to do a painful work to bring that shame again that helps you to grow in godliness the other way you can feel shame though um is not in this life you know i don't mean to be a fire and brimstone preacher but i can't ignore the testimony of scripture that one day we will all stand before the lord and without holiness no one will see the lord and um, Isaiah is the one who says, and I don't want to try to quote it, Isaiah is the one who says, um, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. This is Isaiah 45, 22 through 25 i don't have it on the screen it just came to me god says in isaiah 45 22 turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for i am god and there is no other by myself i have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance that's where paul got it by the way in philippians 2 to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance only in the Lord it shall be said, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed. All who were incensed against him. What does it mean to be incensed against him? Just rebellious against him and, and proudly so. On that day, scripture says they will come and be ashamed. That's the other time shame might come in. But in, him, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall ju be justified and shall glory. Sex is an idol. It just is. Always has been. And that's why in ancient Greece there were whole temples with prostitutes in them. And it's always been an idol. It still is an idol. Um, and Paul says, said it is so in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Where Paul says that we exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And scripture is clear what happens to us through our idol worship. And that's what we are doing, by the way, when we look at pornography. We, it's idol worship and when you when you have any type of sexual expression outside of the bounds of what god has said is right and good and holy it's idol worship and here's what scripture says about those who worship idols it says in psalm 135 psalm 135 verses 16 through 18 of idols they have mouths but do not speak they have eyes but do not see they have ears but do not hear nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So somebody might say, well, if sex is an idol, and the sex is another, uh, I, that's another living person that I'm sleeping with. They have eyes. <laughs> they have mouths that speak and eyes that see. So are they really an idol? This says idols don't have mouths to speak or eyes. they have eyes they don't see. Well, yeah, this, the person you're in sin with, they might have eyes and see some things, and they have mouths that speak some things, and ears that hear some things, but not spiritual things. They are spiritually dead. Sexual fulfillment outside of God's design is a spiritually dead place. And the more we love it, the more spiritually dead we prove to be not become because you can't be spiritually alive and become spiritually dead again i choose my words carefully the more you love it in an unrepentant way the more spiritually dead you prove to be that's seeing the sexual temptation for what it is it's a spiritually dead and damning place of all stripes so what do we do what do we do how do we fight it how does the gospel speak to this struggle in us? 
We could spend a long time here and we won't. I just want to mention two things briefly about fighting it. There are two things we can do to fight it. Um, I'll just say them. They're not on the screen. You can write them down. One is take care where you look. That's one. Take care where you look. Two, take care of what you love. Take care of what you love. First is take care of where you look. Second is take care of what you love. As far as take care of what you look, take, take care of where you look. This is especially true as far as internet and social media goes, uh, and pornography, seeing it for the gross evil that it is. I'm, we, we've already talked about some of that. Uh, in the relationship talk, we talked about it some at fall retreat, especially with the guys. Pornography is, is grotesquely evil. And I know it's a struggle of both guys and girls. It's evil. Evil, evil. But also just take care. Take, when I say take care uh, how you, uh, where you look, also take care how we, how we look at one another. Take care how we look at one another, especially guys. Come on. Like, um, guys, take care how you look at girls. Girls, I'd say the same thing toward guys. Take care how you, how you look at them and what is going through your mind when you look at them. You're a child of God. If, if a guy is attracted to a girl or vice versa, clearly that's not a bad thing. That's a... That's a God-given thing. There's nothing wrong with that in itself, but take care from that point on that you strive to do everything according to God's way. I'm not saying you can never be attracted to a girl until you get married. How would you ever get married? But, but be attractive, but know that that's a God-given desire and try to, try to direct that according to God's way. And if you struggle with pornography, get some accountability. Get something like Covenant Eyes on your phone. Or on your computer. It's only like eight or nine bucks a month. You can afford it. And put some really embarrassing people as your accountability partners. Like, I don't, I don't struggle with pornography, but I have it on my stuff anyway. And guess who one of my accountability partners is? Laura. Like, if I looked at anything, my wife is going to see that. She gets a report every month of everything that I see. So, do it. Jesus said... If your left hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. He's not saying self-mutilation, but he's saying go to extraordinary lengths. That's Jesus Christ talking. But I'm not going to sit here and just give you more practical advice after practical advice because it's a deeper root issue. Um, so the root of it all is take care of what you love. Take care of what you love. Strive with all your might to grow in love for Jesus Christ. Immerse yourself in the Word. Immerse yourself in the Word. Immerse yourself, especially like in the Psalms. Just read a bunch of Psalms every day. I'm not, that, that may sound silly, but do it. They're not that long. Some of them are, but not a lot of them. Read a bunch of psalms every day. What does that do? It immerses you in the, in the praise of God every day. Immerse yourself in the Word. Immerse yourself in prayer. Get something like the book, like the Valley of Vision or something like that and pray those old Puritan prayers. Immerse yourself in the church. Don't be absent from the church. Be here. Um... Put yourself in every position to grow in, 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 in uh, the love of the glory of God in your heart and mind. Why do that? Because that will create, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll wrap it up with this and we'll pray for each other. If you do that, if you, if you give yourself to grow in love for Christ, love for the glory of God, and you just immerse yourselves in all these things, the, in prayer and in the Word and in the church, and he's exalted in your mind, and you genuinely from the heart love him, it will, it will create in you an awareness of the unholy. It will 
it will create also a distaste for it. When I've been out cutting grass, and I'm nasty, if somebody said, will you, all, you know, also clean out the gutters? It doesn't, I mean, I might, I might not want to do it because I'm lazy. But I don't, other than that, I'm, I might not care because I'm already nasty. But if I've just gotten out of the shower, if somebody asked me to do something like that, I don't really want to do that because I don't want to get nasty. And spiritual things are like that. When you immerse yourself in, the, in your mind and in your heart with the things of God and the Word of God and the people of God and the presence of God in prayer and, and obedience, like obediently telling other people about Jesus, sharing the gospel with people. It, it, that's a good deterrent for sin of any kind, especially this. Grow in your love for Christ. Pray for yourself, pray for each other, and know that if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ and are in Him, He has already borne all your shame. That's how the gospel speaks to it. It's just, it goes straight to the shame. I mean, you, you may know the extent of your struggle. You may know the full extent of what you've done. You may know the strength of your addiction to pornography and how long you've struggled with it. And you may be deeply ashamed and the only thing that helps you in your mind right now is the fact that i don't know about it and other people don't know about it you feel like you're languishing you alone know about it well there's one lie that you have believed christ also knows about it and if you confess your sins he is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness Law will not cleanse you of this. Grace will. So go to grace. When we pray, we're going to divide up into groups of no more than five, but this time girls with girls and guys with guys. I'm not having any confession going on in co-ed groups about this kind of thing. So I'm going to pray for us, and then you guys can get together in your groups. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to think about this hard issue. Um, and I still feel like there was so much that could have been said, and I feel like I was just skipping along the high spots of the road and not really um, getting at everything that is here. But again, Lord, I trust that it, what was said was what you would have me to say and, and us to hear, and what the, scripture, the scriptures that we saw were the ones you wanted us to see. And... And it was enough for us to examine our own hearts by, by the light of the law and the gospel. So I pray that you might uh, drive us um, just as you drove Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted on our behalf. That you might, by that same spirit, drive us to Jesus out of the wilderness of our sin and into the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Walking in purity. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys take a few minutes and break up and pray together.